Welcome to the Backdrop, untold stories in golf. I'm your host and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. As the Open is underway at Royal St. George's in Old Sandwich, we take our conversation to rural Florida. But our minds and our souls will be drifting off to the home of golf, a wee town that sits on the coast named St. Andrews. As today we explore the legacy of Scotland's very first golf prodigy, young Tommy Morris. And taking us on that journey will be none other than golf historian Stephen Proctor, the former senior editor of such acclaimed newspapers as the Baltimore Sun, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Houston Chronicle. Nowadays, Stephen spends his time in Malabar, Florida as an author and golf historian. His recent book, Monarch of the Green, Young Tom Morris, Pioneer of the Modern Game of Modern Golf, was released in 2019 and available in paperback here in the U.S. coming up this fall. Stephen is an avid golfer who has spent the past decade studying the history and stories and impact of the Royal and Ancient Game. As most listeners will know, our inspiration for New Club comes from the golf societies in Scotland and Ireland. And in particular, a few stories of young Tom's legacy have truly spoken to both myself and many of our founding members over the years. This conversation taught me that some of those stories may be based a bit more in fiction than they are in fact, but one thing remains. The course of golf, golf's history was transformed by the young Tom Morris. Speaking of history, some folks out there are writing their own. Journeyman Distillery founders Bill and Joanna Welter are two such people, creating a 100-year brand for the ages. They are a first-generation business trailblazing the way for the next. 100% family-owned and operated, they pride themselves on reinventing historic structures and revitalizing their community in Three Oaks, Michigan. We have our Chicago Club Championship dinner there every single year, and I'm telling you, it's the best laughs and the best vibes we experience all year. So if you are looking for some road trip destinations this summer, I can't recommend stopping at the distillery enough. If you can't get there for a wee drum in person, go ahead and give them a look at journeymandistillery.com. That might have been more Irish than Scottish, but I'm not totally sure. So without further ado, on to the show with Stephen Proctor and the story of young Tom Morris. Stephen Proctor, welcome to The Bag Drop. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It is nice to be with you. I'm very excited about this topic today. Anyone that knows me and knows New Club knows I love to geek out about the royal and ancient game that we come from uh, in Scotland and specifically uh, the Morrises and, and Young Tom. And that has been a topic of, uh, of your dedication and uh, and, and with the book Monarchar the Green, that is uh, broadly going to be released in America this 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 year. Um, but uh, but first, let's start with you. I, I I know you were a high ranking editor for some of the nation's largest papers, and and I'm just curious, what made you want to go from the news of yesterday to the news of 150 years ago? Well, you know, honestly, uh, the reason that I started doing golf history books was twofold. One is the journalism game had been really upended during the, the tail end of my career. And if you were the editor of the paper or the managing editor, as I was, a, a good portion of your time was spent figuring out how to cut the budget and fire people or lay them off. And, you know, I got discouraged with that. I didn't get into the game for that reason. I wanted to do, you know, serious work, 
hopefully literary journalism, which was the thing that I've always had an interest in and a specialty in. And it was getting to the point where it's very difficult and almost impossible to devote the resources that you needed to that. So I started making plans to try to, about eight or nine years before I retired, I started to realize, you know, this is not going to be something I'm going to want to do until I'm 65 or whatever. I'm going to probably want to think of something else to do. Uh, and so I had been very interested in golf and my, my passion in life has always been history. I was a history major in college. You know, journalism is more like a craft, like learning to build a cabinet, not really an intellectual area of study per se, other than reading other great journals. But I wanted to have a real academic career in college and I studied history. That has always been one of my principal interests. So after I really got hooked on golf, like everybody that does get hooked on golf, I made a trip to St. Andrews. And when I went there, uh, you know, I'd already been reading a lot of golf history with the idea of maybe doing something in golf history. And we got there on a Sunday. Obviously, the course isn't open on Sunday. And we were just taking a little tour of the town and, you know, went to see Tommy's uh, gravestone there in the cathedral churchyard at St. Andrews. And that, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to go there or be there. It's a quell heck of an inspiring site. You know, the thing is almost twice the height of an average person. And uh, you wonder why, why is his tombstone like three times the size of his father, who you've heard of all your life, and maybe not so much of him. So what is that about? How does that story come to pass? And uh, if you look into it a little bit, you realize that every single golfing society that was existed in Tommy's age contributed to the monument. So you have to have a question for yourself, which is, all right, this is a young guy that's born to the working class. And here are nobles and lords and various others reaching into their own pocket to build a monument to his memory. And you, you have to feel like at that moment, well, there's a life that's worth exploring. And it was while I was in St. Andrews the first time that I decided that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna figure out the Tommy story and go tell that story. I had been working in literary journalism for a number of years, which in other words, is telling true stories in the same way that you would tell a novel but with absolute 100% documented research. And that's what I felt like I could contribute to golf is to take that skill and write the history of the game in a way that any person playing on a Sunday could get it and understand it. And it, not would, be in, it would be intensely academic in the sense of every single thing in the book is traced to an individual who saw the event and wrote it down or told it to somebody who wrote it down. And uh, so it's accurate in that way, but it's told as a yarn, as a tale, as how it unfolded in real time. And I feel like two things happen there. One is it becomes much more approachable for the average golfer. And the second one is that telling things in the way that they unfold in real time, to my mind, brings a level of truth that's kind of difficult to obtain in other ways. Because seeing it as it happened, if you can create that, uh, is a verite that's sometimes hard to achieve in straight up academic work. And our, our, our world that had seemingly been more and more cynical, at least as audiences taking in uh, all the different media forms, we all kind of know that eh, there's, there's a story, a version of every story. So how, why was the um, accuracy of, you know, I, I understood that you took only sources from the 1800s for this. You didn't use anything that was outside of Tommy's life. Is that correct? Only Bernard Darwin and Bernard Darwin um, was so tapped into uh, the evolution of golf. I did use some of his thoughts 
because by the time of Bernard Darwin's age, Tommy had risen up to the level of like, Bernard refers to him as the almost mythical Tommy Morris. And so some of that uh, is in the book, Reflections by Bernard on where he thinks, and Bernard had connections to people who saw Tommy play, like Bernard was good friends with Leslie uh, Balfour Melville, who was uh, a great amateur sportsman, winner of the amateur championship at St. Andrews in 1895. And so he could ask and speak with Leslie about Tommy. So I felt like that was the last, last connection I was comfortable with. All the other things in the book are from memoirs by Andrew Kirkcaldy, the famous caddy and character in St. Andrews, from Bob Ferguson's interview with a, a historian named George Colville, from other people who played against Tommy, Tommy's original, uh, Tom, old Tom's original biographer, William Tulloch has a huge amount about Tommy in his book. Uh, and so that, you know, all the various standard sources, the Golf Book of East Lothian, various other uh, historic documents, and of course, newspaper research, uh, quite a lot of newspaper research trying to track down where and how Tommy played and what people wrote about him. That level of, of commitment to, to only those sources and why was that important to you for this story? Or is that, is that important to you for all literary journalism that you do? Or, yes, or was it- that would be my philosophy of doing this. I'm trying to, you know, every person, I have no disrespect for these people, but people like Mark Frost and Kevin Cook, who have written about golf history, they cross over a line that I'm not comfortable with as a journalist, which is that they create scenes as they think they would have occurred based on fairly extensive research. And I, you know, they have done solid research on their books and I'm not in any way questioning that. I'm just saying for me as a historian, I'm interested in only what is provably true, uh, not what I think it might've been like. And uh, so I feel like that's the line I wanted to draw in the work I was trying to do and to see if it would be possible with the background I have and the particular skills that I nurtured over 35 years in the newspaper game to uh, do a new kind of history in which you get the same story that they tell in a certain way, but without having to wander across any fuzzy lines. And so that, that's what I'm about. Um, you know, I have a, another one that I'm at work on having to do with the period of the game in which golf comes of age after, after John Ball wins the Open Champion as an amateur and Englishman in 1890. And the years after that, in between there and the Great War. So I'm trying to tell that story. But I want to do it as a narrative history, you know, real history just told as a tale. It's very difficult at times. And in the Tommy book in particular, because it'll be a lot less difficult. It is a lot less difficult with this other one because so much more is reported. But in the uh, 1850s, 60s and 70s, reporting is uh, not quite the professional enterprise we think of now. And it's just very different. So there wasn't as much material there. And so some of that was just uh, as a writer, thinking of a way to tell the story without the scene by scene creation that you would ordinarily do if you had the material. For, you know, me, I'm, I'm anxiously waiting the book and its arrival here on my doorstep. And uh, I, I started doing my research on, on how you went about this. And this was a point that really st stuck out to me um, that, you know, I, I love those Mark Frost books. I, I definitely, I do too. I own every one of them. But as as someone who was inspired by these characters and have read a lot of the, these books, and I know that these are real people, I what I really am am searching for the most is um, 
the authenticity of, of who these people were. And I think for young Tom, I, I have been to the gravesite in Scotland and, and I, I had the exact same reaction that I'm sure you did uh, where it's like, well, that's funny. I mean, this thing is, is a shrine compared to his old man. And, and then just all the other stories that I've kind of started to piece together. And, and, and so for me, it's not just the, the entertainment of, of this. It's really trying to get to the heart of uh, who was this person? Cause I, I feel attached to this person because I'm such a lover of the game of golf, but, but who were they really? And so your approach really means something to, to, I think the, those of us that are, are that level of golf geek. It has been really, really well received uh, in the community of St. Andrews historians. You know, I'm not, I'm obviously from America and so I wondered a little bit how it would be received in St. Andrews that one of their bigger heroes' story is told by somebody who's not only not Scottish, but not even in the United Kingdom. And uh, I was pleased, very, very pleased uh, by the way people welcomed me with open arms there. And uh, I was very fortunate that I got invited to speak at the National Library of Scotland and at the British Golf Museum after the book came out. and. Uh, when I went there to St. Andrews to speak at the British Golf Museum, I was just treated like royalty by them, which was great and, I, and very, very touching. So I enjoyed that very much. And I do think um, the historians that I have met in St. Andrews often have difficulty with some of these other kinds of books because they feel like that crossing of that line can wander into things that they feel are not really true or, or supported by enough evidence to make a statement of that nature. So, uh, and I did get help with the book from St. Andrews historians, in particular, Peter Crabtree, very, uh, he's the author of the definitive biography of old Tom. And if your listeners haven't heard of that one, it's called Tom Morris of St. Andrews, the Colossus of Golf. And it is just an, a staggeringly great biography. The amount of research that has gone into it, they researched it for 17 years, I believe. And uh, it's just an amazing book. And Peter, uh, <clears throat> owns almost all the photos of the Morris family in his private collection. And so when I got to the end of writing the book, which I just did because I felt like it, never knew if it would get published or anything, uh, I realized I had the stupid idea that, you know, it's really old. I'll be able to get all the photos because they'll, be, uh, they'll be out of copyright. And, and that's not how it works. Uh, if a British collector owns the image in Britain, they have the right to make you pay them to use the image in a book or whatever. So then I got a little concerned and but Peter was wonderful. He asked to read the manuscript. He'd had some bad experiences in the past lending out his photos. And uh, so <clears throat> once he read it, he was very positive about it. And he personally spent months and months and months editing it uh, to make sure that everything in it was correct. And there were some things in it, obviously, when you're doing that level and scale of research, there are things that you miss. And uh, he kept me from making some mistakes I would have regretted for sure. And it was he who introduced me to the publishing house that published my book, which is the same one that published his. So I was really, really grateful for his assistance. And I never would have gotten it done if it wasn't for the fact that he took me under his wing, I feel pretty sure. It makes perfect sense that you get into golf history as a golfer. I, I'm curious why you rolled back. It, you had that inspiring moment, it sounds like, in St. Andrew. But um, why roll back to the the very beginning? Is that just the the deep historian in you that... Uh, you know, American history, uh, why, why the Royal and Ancient Game? Why, why did you go back to the oldest sod there, there was for this, for your start in golf history? I would say because the more, I first started reading just generally about the history of the game. So I felt like if you want to write about golf history, well, you're going to need to know the whole arc of golf history. You can't 
pretend to understand where Tommy Morse fits in if you don't understand what happened through Hogan, Nicholas Woods, all the way up to the end, right? So, and, and of course, all the years in between. And so the first thing I did when I started on this book was to order the Classics of Golf Library that Herbert Warren Wynn created. It's uh, 69 of what he considered to be the greatest golf books ever written. And they span different disciplines from instruction to architecture to Bernard Darwin, lots of them by, by Bernard Darwin, and then uh, history books. So I read those 69 books to get started. And then um, when I was doing that, the thing that puzzled me, Matt, was this. So here you have a game that exists in one nation only and not even all across that whole nation for 400 years, pretty much unchanged, you know, pretty much frozen in amber, played exactly the same way every day at every club. And then a new ball gets introduced in 1848 or thereabouts. And uh, within 50 years of that date, golf is a worldwide game. One of the only games that's really played everywhere in the world. When you think about it, soccer, football, as, as, as Brits would call it, or, or tennis and golf may be the only truly worldwide games that are played everywhere. And so I just thought it was like, wow, how does the game that's go in a 50 year period from that space to being worldwide? And I thought that's a pretty interesting historical tale. So I was already noodling on that when I saw the Tommy statue. And then I started looking into Tommy and it occurred to me that Tommy is the spark that starts the change. He and was father in the open and Alan Robertson too. But, but really Tommy, when Tommy comes along and the new ball comes along, he's able to sort of revolutionize how the game is played to popularize the game as a spectator sport because of his swashbuckling personality. And of course his brilliance and English papers really start covering the game in a very, very serious way. When Tommy starts making that March to claim the champion's belt in 1868. And then, of course, Englishmen reading about the game in their paper are interested in learning what this new game is. And it all starts that way. And then, you know, after Tommy, the game really starts to spread in England with his father being very involved in that as well. And once an Englishman wins the Open, well, then all bets are off. Then it just it's like insane how fast golf grows uh, after an Englishman wins the Open and especially an amateur, because at that time, the population of golfers was at least 85 or 90 percent amateurs, wealthy men at the very beginning. And then Tommy helps to popularize the game, not as being played. Everyone played, of course, in Scotland in particular, less so in England. Uh, only rich people played in England, but in Scotland, everyone played. But they didn't necessarily follow golf because competitive golf was basically, you know, the, the medal at the Royal and Ancient. And I don't know how much the average working stiff cared about that. But when Another average working stiff, well, who was a lot less than average, but another working stiff started uh, dominating golf like in a way that Tiger Woods has done, literally in that way. Uh, then they, they, they paid more attention. They started to really become interested in it as a spectator sport. And that's when it really starts to spread all over. And uh, so I was just interested in, I really set out to do a two-part story. One was the Tommy story and the other was the story of, of golf's, what Bernard likes to refer to as the long golden afternoon. Uh, the time when uh, when the game comes of age and spreads worldwide. Wow. You you mentioned Tommy. We'll, we'll get into Tommy. So you mentioned his personality. Um, yes. My, my own experiences, most of which had had a, I had a very special afternoon at the New Golf Club of St Andrews, and I yes, wonderful place. I've 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 had the privilege of going there as well. 
and and there's so and there's so many in St. Andrews. So I don't want to make the new club seem like it's uh, uh, that rare because I I could have walked in any of them. I think I would have had the same warm welcome and um, uh, the same kind of kind of treatment. But I was listening to some stories and they were telling us some history and it felt like these people knew young Tommy. And 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 I heard more more stories about young Tommy than I heard about old um, from the one gentleman we were sitting with. And uh, you said swashbuckling. I, yes. I, I got this sense from from that time that this was uh, a, a rebel. This was someone who wasn't afraid to stand out, who wasn't afraid to, to be his own man. How, how would you des- describe um, young Tommy and, and what his personality and character really was? Well, I wouldn't choose the word rebel for Tommy, <clears throat> for starting. So no offense there, but no, Tommy no. was the only golfer of his age, one of the only golfers of his age. He was truly an educated man. His parents uh, arranged for him to attend the Air Academy, which was then and now one of the premier schools in Scotland, which that wasn't something any working class child ever got. And the reason that Tom was able to pull it off, obviously, is because he had these relationships with the wealthy and privileged men of the Presswick Golf Club. And they, more no doubt, James Ogilvy Fairley, his mentor, arranged for Tommy to get in the Air Academy. But the Morrises had to spend a good amount of their money to send him there. So they obviously had an indication early on or desire early on for Tommy to be different than the other golfers of his age. So imagine here's a kid who's attending his schooling uh, right next to the sons of wealthy gentlemen that he then partners in a foursome uh, later in the day. And so he, he learned to travel in wealthy company differently than other people. And he viewed himself differently than, you know, Tommy is the only professional of his age that I could ever find who never caddied. Tommy was not about to stoop over and tee up some guy's ball or whatever. So he had a different idea of himself than other golfers. And that's principally the different thing about him is he had a different idea of himself. And of course he had a tremendous gift for the game. You know, he plays in his first match at the age of uh, not quite 13. He's a couple weeks from his 13th birthday when his father takes him up to Perth with the idea of letting him play in an amateur event at the Perth Open. All the events there would be, you know, because travel was difficult, you need to be able to stay a few days. They would have the event. They would have an amateur event. They would have this other thing. You know, there'd be multiple events going on. So Tommy was going to play in the amateur event. and His father was going to play in the professional event. But he got barred from the amateur event by the committee that ran the, the event saying, hey, it's not fair to consider this kid an amateur. I guess he already must have had a giant reputation, although. That's not something you can find in a newspaper. You can only determine from the behavior of the committee. His reputation clearly had preceded him because they wouldn't let him do it. And then the professionals were like, nah, nah, we're not going to, we don't think he can play in this event because they weren't really that hot to trot about the idea that they might get beaten by a 12 year old. So he was, he was that good apparently right away. One other enterprising member of the club set up a match with him against a kid named William Gregg, who was the star golfer of the Perth area and quite a good player went on in life to, to see seed uh, quite well at golf and win some giant club medals over in uh, Shanghai and places like that. So um, Tommy killed him and the crowd that followed Tommy was like twice the size of the one that followed the professional tournament. So, you know, there's a lot of evidence that people were aware of Tommy's gift when he was really young. And um, it was only three years later when he was 16 that uh, he played at Carnoustie in what was the biggest golf event that happened in that age, 32 players, which in that time is quite a lot. A typical open might have 12 to 20. So there was the 32 best golfers, which is every great golfer in the world assembled at Carnoustie 
to play. There's a very small world of golf now when we're talking about 1867, which is when this occurs. And Tommy, um, not only does he win, he ties, uh, he ties with Willie Park Jr. and a man named Bob Andrews of Perth uh, for first place. They play a 10-hole playoff. At that time, Preswick was the original 10 holes that Alan Robertson laid out. And uh, Tommy wins the playoff, too, with a score of 42. Uh, and then the next day, Willie Park is the reigning Open champion. He had won the Open Championship in 1866. And they make a match for Tommy against Willie Park. And he annihilates Willie Park like eight and six. I forget the exact score. But he just crushes him. And I think it was like one of the worst defeats Willie ever had in his life. And so here is a, a kid who's 16 years old. And uh, he's just crushing all the best golfers in the world. In that playoff, his father wouldn't bet him because uh, he said, ah, no, I think he's a little young to stand up to that kind of pressure. But uh, that didn't turn out to be true. So uh, from there, it was just a juggernaut. You know, after 1867, he rarely got beaten, you know, uh, and uh, most of the times that he did lose, oftentimes when he lost, he would be in a foursome where he was depending on the skill of another player, including often his father, who had times when he didn't play that well because he had a lot going on. He designed golf courses. He ran St. Andrews, you know, as the greenkeeper, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, but in, if he played you one on one, he won 75 percent of the time. And, you know, I, I've heard you uh quoted before that he was in this unbeatable phase for seven eight years uh i think that was during the time that he won four open championships three in a row um you know we all know if we're on twitter <laughs> we all know yeah. this this uh impossible historical comparison but that doesn't stop everyone from you know trying to answer uh, who's the goat <laughs> who's the greatest of all time but we thought you'd give it a shot here. Would, would you compare young Tom's prowess with the very best golfers of today? Do you think young Tom um, was the greatest golfer of all time? Well, I, th I think it's difficult to compare golfers from one generation to another. I, I usually say it this way, which is, I think there are six immortals, which is all you can ever be is what Harry Everard, the, the writer and historian from Tommy's age, referred to him as the Goliath of his generation. And that is everything you can be, is to dominate the generation that you're in. And in my view, there are six people who have accomplished that. The first one is Tommy. And that's important. First is very important. Uh, second one is Harry Varden. And, uh, and Harry Varden's record is just staggering. Then the third is Hogan. Then, uh, oh, excuse me, Jones. Then Hogan. Then Nicholas and Woods. And that's everybody that I think of as can be discussed as one of the immortals. Um, I would take Tommy against any of them uh, with, uh, in any, any match, any time. You know, he had a way better short game than most of these players. He was one of the greatest putters of all time, and that can be quite telling in a match. You know, Tommy was a very cocksure player as well. He played a match in 1869 against a guy named Bob Ferguson from Musselboro, who was a pretty formidable golfer and three-time winner of the Open himself, three consecutive wins in the Open after Tommy died. Uh, but Ferguson was like had post-traumatic dress disorder from that round because Tommy just made every putt. It was insane. And he was getting so confident toward the middle of the round that he would hit a putt 35, 40 feet from the flag and just walk to the tee box and lean over his shoulder and look at his caddy and say, pick it up out of the hole, laddie, while it was still rolling. And then just walk away, like, take that. So, I mean, that's his, I don't know, that's pretty intimidating if I'm playing against him. Uh, and I would say that's every bit as intimidating as Tiger, even in his prime. I know, you know, is uh, 
So, you know, I think he is definitely in consideration for the greatest golf forever. And I, I recently wrote an article for the Through the Green, which is the journal of the British Historical Society, uh, making the argument that Tommy's round to win the belt in 1870, the third of his consecutive opens, which retired the original trophy, big red leather Moroccan belt with a giant silver buckle in it, uh, is the greatest round played ever, the greatest tournament played. He shot 149 over 36 holes at Presswick, which is an intensely difficult course for that time, which is the equivalent of a 74 at a time when winning scores were 86. Uh, so it was just mind-boggling. He made a three on a 578-yard hole to open the event. Open the like, event, if yeah. you think you're going to win today, I would think again, because I just made a three on a 578-yard hole that people struggled to make six on. So, you know, it was he was just an incredibly overpowering, intimidating player, particularly if he was in trouble, you know, he, he didn't in, in the age where Tommy played, the idea was don't press, don't reach for anything too more. And then he just had no use for that. None at all. He swang as hard as he could every time his hat came flying off most of the time that he swang. And uh, he, he didn't care if he got into trouble and he thought it was actually kind of fun. So in a lot of ways, he's like Seve Ballesteros in the sense of wild, sweet, free swinger, but no trouble too much trouble to make a miraculous recover from. And in a match, that's just heartbreaking. You know, the guy hits it into the oblivion. Literally, he hit it once over the wall at North Berwick on the, on the fourth hole there. Not at North Berwick, at Presswick, excuse me. He tried to, his ball landed right up against the wall. So uh, on his second shot. So he tried to ricochet it off the wall and knock it back onto the green. Typical kind of thing he would do. Of course, it didn't ricochet off the wall. It flew up in the air and over the wall into oblivion. So then he just hops over the wall with one club, makes a pitch shot that lands two feet from the hole and goes and puts it in and wins the hole from the guy who had to think he had it in the bag. So, you know, he, he was doing that kind of thing constantly. You know, we, we were uh, we were looking for a silhouette of, of young Tom to um, ter- have some fun with for a, a alternative logo. We're going to use at our club championship this year. And um, we found one where the club, you know, it was John Daly esque. I mean, it was clearly, it was fully in his, his view over the top. Oh, of you got to be careful about that. Cause I'm pretty sure that's not him. That's his brother, Josh. <laughs> it's, who is it? His brother. Okay. James Ogilvy Farley. So that one that gets on Twitter with the shows with this club all the way behind. Yeah. That's not him. That's his so brother. Don't, don't use that. One. <laughs> that's uh, so great. There is no image of Tommy swinging a club other than the one that you see carved into his tombstone. Uh, so the, um, but if you were to able to swing him, the thing that distinguished his swing is what you see there with his brother, Joff is what you would call the classic old St. Andrew's swing. That's John Daly-esque. And it's a very slow moving type of a swing. Tommy only went back about halfway, three quarters of the way, and he would just rip through it though, you know? So he had a kind of a low penetrating ball flight, uh, didn't hit it as far as some guys, but he got a lot of roll and, uh, he, but it, like I say, the thing that destroyed people was not even so much the, um, the length that he had, or anything. it was just the ability to recover and the just devastating ability to make putts. The, uh, you mentioned Presswick a couple of times and that I, I, I love the, the tale of his three on that 578 yard opener. Oh my gosh. Yes. That, that was like the, the shot heard around the world before anybody ever heard of Gene Sarris. And, and so just to put it in perspective, uh, the ball was going off the tee for these guys. How far? I would say that an average drive would probably be in the 180 range. A well-struck drive, a really good drive, 200. 
And if the course was baked out, you might get it to roll 220. So that's a, a different, maybe not for all of us different, but it's a different. Yeah, not for me, but I mean, for, <laughs> uh, for people that can actually play. Um, it's, but, you know, the Open Rota uh, Presswick is, is on there so many times, obviously, where many of which Young Tom won. Um, how, how difficult was, was Presswick in the 1870s? Was this known as, as one of the more challenging layouts? All the way up through the end of the use of Presswick, which was 1925, the course was viewed as too small and too confined uh, to be able to have further opens. Um, but Presswick, I would say, uh, I think it was generally agreed that St. Andrews presented the toughest test of golf at that age. But I would say that in the 60s and 70s, there would have been substantial people who felt that Presswick was harder, uh, more difficult. Presswick was, you know, a very, uh, the 12-hole course originally was, was a dastardly thing. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've had a chance to play the course or not, but there are a number of really large size, blind, difficult shots like the Himalayas. The Cardinal Bunker is just a massively fearsome hazard. The Himalayas, the, excuse me, the Alps is also a daring and difficult hole. So it was an extremely difficult golf course. I think a lot of, even up through Harry Varden's age, a number of the players of that time would have considered Presswick the toughest test. Uh, and some of the players, Felt, you know, St. Andrews has so many odd bounces, more so than Presswick even, and uh, some players never could wrap their arms around St. Andrews. But I, I personally think St. Andrews is a greater golf course, but Presswick, I think, is an extraordinarily difficult test at that time. It played about 5,700 yards, which was longish for that era. St. Andrews played 6,100 and change then. And uh, so it was longish, like it was several a lot longer than Hoylake, which is also very difficult but i think presswick would generally consider a brutally difficult test in that age yeah yeah because if, if you know those that that make a trip it's it's a must stop i i find it to be one of the most entertaining golf courses that you can, oh yeah i mean it's uh whimsical and and sporty maybe even but but then i started thinking about it in context of what we're talking about here and that that opening shot made me think about it i go man i i i bet you this place was wasn't a cakewalk and, and not that it is today but it definitely isn't as you said they, it's they, not they, as intimidating today because of the length of the equipment and everything but if you can only hit it 180 suppose you hit it into the valley there below the ops you think you can get it over the mountain and over the bunker that's a tough tough shot yeah, exactly. especially you know you're on the 17th hole your match may be coming to a conclusion like right now and are you going to go for it or not and it, it's you know it was a very very difficult golf course i know harry varden uh, thought of it as a really great test of golf. And so did John Henry Taylor and most of the people that came after Tommy. In the book, Monarch of the Green, do you get into the relationship of father and son, um, old Tom and, yeah, and And, you know, this is one of the areas where I think it's been misrepresented elsewhere. I think um, there's a lot written about the degree to which there was tension between father and son. And I have seen what I would call almost zero evidence of that. The only evidence that I've seen is that obviously his parents disapproved of the woman that he married uh, and they didn't attend the wedding. Now, his mother was bedridden with rheumatoid arthritis at the time. So but she did attend another child's wedding, which was in St. Andrews, not all the way across the country in, in, in West Lothian, like he was he was doing. Uh, they disapproved of that mostly because she was a person beneath Tommy's class and Tommy was making bundles of money playing golf and one in 1872 the year before he married her he made 200 pounds sterling which would be is a staggering sum for a working class person 
Tom's annual salary at the Royal and Ancient was 50 pounds to give you some sense of perspective. So he earned four times his father's salary just playing. And uh, that doesn't even count whatever he made betting on himself or that other people slipped in his pocket when he won a bet for them or anything like that. So he had so much earning power and the idea that he would marry beneath his class, his parents just disapproved of that. You know, and uh, there's a lot in the book about why, why Tommy would choose the woman he chose. Her name was Margaret, partly because, you know, Tommy's been hanging around with old men since he was 12. You know, Margaret was 10 years older than him. And I think it might be that he just found the women that were his own age, not mature enough. You know, a lot of them were just raised to get married. She had lived a hard life. She had had a child out of wedlock and this and that and the other thing. So she was a little bit more worldly wise, and that could have been something that appealed to him. But in any case, Tommy was a guy that did what he felt he wanted to do. When you go back to your question of him as a rebel, he was just very self-confident and he was going to be his own man and he didn't care what you thought about it. So he was a rebel in that regard, in the sense that he had complete disregard for Victorian convention, you know, as evidenced by marrying Margaret to start with. But he uh, he didn't. uh, But he would never like his father and him were a huge business enterprise. They uh, were the most popular attraction in the game of golf, not by a little, by a lot. And they made a bundle of money playing in foursomes together. So I doubt very seriously that they were at war with each other, given that. There's everything that's written down that you can see and read from somebody who knew them and saw them thinks they had a wonderful relationship. Uh, You know, the the marriage thing does raise a question for you, but I don't see any other evidence of it. And I don't see Tommy rebelling against members of the Royal and Ancient either for the simple reason that Tommy made his living principally playing as the portion partner of a gentleman. So if you need Alexander Kinlock, the president of the Royal and Ancient, or one of those guys, John White Melville, to give you money when you're playing with them, you're probably not going to be thumbing your nose at him, I wouldn't think. So I just don't see that as making any logical sense. And I've never seen any evidence of it. And I asked Peter Crabtree about it specifically because it's been written elsewhere. And he, he was very firm on this. And his, his answer was, well, Stephen, I've read every letter ever written by a member of the Royal and Ancient from 1844 forward, and I've not seen any mention of any difficulty with Tommy. Well, I think that's kind of yeah. strong evidence of a countervailing nature to the rebel story. Uh, so I, I, he was definitely independent. He was definitely uh, feared no man and wasn't going to kowtow to any person. And even the rich guys knew that and they didn't love it, you know, but it's like for the same reason that they forgive Tiger Woods for his dalliances, waitresses, they uh, they forgive Tommy for behaving as if he was the person far above the station he actually was in, which was the way he did behave. Like to flaunt his money, he dressed like Andy. When he did get married, he rented the most expensive house in town. They would have considered extremely vulgar for a working class person, even if they did make money. And uh, so in that way, he was, he was a little bit like Ali, too, I feel like. You know, he's just very cocky, and, but he could back it up. People love that for the same reason they love Ali. Uh, so, Yeah, that, that's, that, I, I was hoping that I, I would come on today with you, Stephen, and, and there would be something in my perspective that changed. This was a big one because I think – and like like you said uh, elsewhere, I have seen him p- depicted as that um, you know r- rebel that that person that's going against the grain. But um, to me, it does seem like just a strong independence uh, that is what you're saying. It's the education, the fact that he was as educated as any of those men, and that he had you know he just plus the other thing is he could beat them all like easy. And uh, the most important thing he did for the history of 
professional golf was that the way that operations worked is if you were a golf professional, meaning that you worked in Allen Robertson's shop or whatever, making clubs or balls, and a gentleman summoned you as his partner, you would just leave work and go play. You wouldn't have any guarantee. If your side won, he would give you 10%. That was usually the standard uh, division of a bet. Uh, but if you didn't win, well, he might tip you and he might not. And when Tommy, uh, after he started winning the Open and playing better, playing great golf, he would not accept that. He had a fee. And you would either pay the fee or you wouldn't, whether you win or whether you lose. And that was a huge turning point for the game. And that was one of the, you know, but here's the simple truth of it is whatever gentleman thought of it, they paid it. They didn't argue with them. They paid the fee and they, they, he was the most employed person. And the reason they paid the fee was, well, you were probably going to win. You had like an 80% chance of winning if Tommy was on your side. So it seemed sensible in addition to, he just wouldn't play with you otherwise. So the fact that they paid it is compelling evidence to me. Uh, And, you know, Here's the other thing is if he was rebelling against gentlemen, why would all 60 golf societies build a memorial to him? There's the fundamental question you have. The one physical proof you have is that memorial that he was incredibly beloved all over the world of golf. So if he was in a rebel state, rebel state against the Royal and ancient, why on earth would every one of those men attend his funeral? Why on earth would they then pay, pay money out of their own pocket, not out of club funds, out of their own money? to put up a memorial in his honor and then uh, attend the memorial themselves. And the Lord justice of England of, of United kingdom is giving the speech at his tombstone. So I, I just don't buy that. I don't, I don't think there is evidence to support it. For those golf societies that clearly thought so highly of him, is there much history you found around his involvement with their formation? Um, because I do believe it was within his lifetime. It was around the same time that many of them got started. Yes. No, there's no evidence involved in his involvement in their the formation of the clubs, but he very often would uh, go to a club as an attraction. And that would help them gain, well, of course, they'd pay him, uh, and that would help gain traction. So, for instance, uh, Royal Liverpool, which is the number one English course in the history of the game, Hoylake, they are formed in 1869. And then in 1872, they were very bold, ambitious guys. They, they have, Hoylake has invented everything worth having in golf uh, other than the Open Championship, and uh, including international competition and everything. So they, invite, they, they staged a big tournament in 1872 because they wanted to put themselves on the map, but also because when Tommy won the Open for the third time in 1870, that, that retired the trophy, so there wasn't a trophy. And then there became discussion among members of Presswick about whether they should try to expand the open and to St. Andrews and Musselboro, who were the other two big societies. And it never, all the original opens were played at Presswick up until 1872. I mean, 1873, excuse me. So in 1871, late in 1871, they started proposing that we buy another trophy and all three of us put this on instead of just Presswick. And that took a long time to negotiate in part because the leader of Presswick didn't want to go along, but he was outvoted by his members. And in part because, you know, high-end golf societies in that age were not exactly big fans of professional golfers. They sort of, Horace Hutchinson wrote that they were feckless, reckless creatures whose only loves were golf and whiskey, and uh, which isn't entirely untrue, uh, except for Tom and a few others. But um, 
they staged this giant tournament and Tommy came and so did all of his friends from St. Andrews. And so in that way, he helped to put Hoylake on the map and did that for other locations as well. The Sterling Golf Club hired him. I'm working on pinning this down, but it would appear that they hired him for a month just to come and play as a star attraction. Things like that would happen for him. Uh, and tournaments would be put in town and, you know, guaranteed purses would be put up the sort of early equivalent of an appearance fee. And so he would help clubs get on the map that way, but he was not uh, an institutional guy in any way. He just, all he wanted to do was play. And he knew he was good enough to win as much money as he required by playing and playing alone. Didn't want to caddy, didn't want to work in any shops. He just wanted to play golf. Oh. He's the first person that managed to do that. Yeah. Successfully. Win by only play. Yeah. The, uh, the gambling. Can we talk about golf, gambling and golf? And at this time, its involvement in uh, Tommy's growth of the game? Gambling is the lifeblood of golf and always has been. Uh, it's interesting to me to see the game come around now to, you know, allowing DraftKings and all that other gambling. But the bottom line of it is, if you were to go to any club in the ancient times, the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers or, or the Society of St. Andrews Golfers, even before they became the Royal and Ancient, you'll find that they have a bet book. And the bet book records all the wagers made between members and sees that they're paid. And uh, so that nobody played golf without making a bet ever at a club. And so if Tommy's playing in a foursome, the two wealthy guys that are on opposite sides and have their professionals with them are putting up 20 or 30 pounds against each other uh, as their entertainment. These guys don't have jobs. They are landed. They have property. They don't work. They just play golf and do sporting things like Hunter or whatever like that. So <clears throat> gambling was their main enterprise and their main way of being entertained. When they started the great matches, you know, like, the great match in 1849 between Allen and old Tom and the Dunn brothers of Musburg, those were often staged at autumn meetings of clubs so that it would be gambling entertainment for the members. And that was how that all began. And the tournaments itself, the tournaments themselves were set up as adjunct facilities to a meeting of the club to have more entertainment. That's how the open started all of them. And so um, gambling was really massive. And it was different than today. So like if you were playing in a match, there would be bookies walking along on every hole. You could bet on the outcome of that hole. You could bet on a stroke. You could bet on the uh, multiple bets about the outcome of the game itself. And there'd be guys shouting. I mean, and it was not like nobody was whispering like, OK, he's lined up over. Nobody did that. People were screaming and yelling that if you were trying to hit a ball and you were playing in Musselboro and you were a St. Andrews guy, they were all crowded around you to the point where you could hardly swing. And uh, quite literally, one of Tom's matches with Willie Park Sr. had to be halted because the crowd got too rowdy and, and, and no one could play. Balls were being kicked into gorse bushes. I mean, it was crazy, a rowdy scene in those days. And um, so, yeah, it was all about the gambling. And everybody had money on the match at all times, including the players themselves most of the time. You know, uh, they would uh, Tommy would, for instance, bet himself regularly to go around St. Andrews and some outlandish score. So like, say, he'll say, I'll go around today in 81. How many people want to say, I can't do that? Like, almost like Tin Cup, who wants to say, I can't go around here with a seven hour or whatever. But he would make those bets on, on the regular. And, uh, and then if he had bet himself to go around in 81, he would uh, shoot 80. And uh, if he bet himself to go around in 82, he'd shoot 81. You know, he just, and, you know, somebody else bet him to grow in 85, he'd shoot 84. But, you know, he just would do whatever was required 
there's a really fun story about him. There's a guy named Provost Brody at North Barrick who used to like to bet on Tommy to go around in a certain score. So he bets on Tommy to go around a low score there at North Barrick. And Tommy's like messing around. He's smoking his pipe during the round. He's chit-chatting with all of his buddies. And there's only like six holes left or something. Provost Brody runs out onto the golf course to say, Tommy, you got to pay attention or you're going to lose my money. And Tommy says, oh, yeah, yeah. How many strokes do I have left? And the guy tells him how many strokes. Ah, don't worry. And he comes in one less than that. So he was just capable of other otherworldly things. The complete control of your golf ball. The uh, related to the gambling, you've written about the challenge matches and the tradition of challenge matches, which is pretty interesting. Now that we you know, have these, the match on on Capital One presents the match. Um, you tell it, tell our audience about those challenge matches. And what one specifically, I think many of us hear the most about are uh, the Morrises versus the Parks. And, and I'd love to hear your uh, view of, of were those as intense as they've been depicted. And, and that's, but let's start with the challenge matches, how they kind of came to be. So around the early 1820s and 1830s, wealthy men in, in, in say St. Andrews and Musselboro, which the two were the two basic main golf centers at that time. There was also golf elsewhere in Perth and Aberdeen and other places, but the two most thriving places were the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers and the Society of St. Andrews Golfers. So a wealthy guy from St. Andrews uh, who wanted some entertainment and most of all wanted a chance to bet. This is the key. They wanted a chance to bet. And uh, so you would then have, uh, let's say, James Ogilvy Farley from St. Andrews and somebody else from Musselburgh offer to put up 100 pounds to back Tom Morse Sr. against Willie Park Sr. in a match between two cities. And so the city rivalry was very powerful between those two places, partly because they were rival centers of golf, partly because they were very different kinds of towns. You know, Musselboro is more of a working class town with a lot of coal mines and industry. And St. Andrews is a university town and the ecclesiastical capital of the nation for a long period of time. So they were just different sorts of populaces, and that probably contributed some to the rivalry. Uh, so then they would play these matches over four greens or three, depending on circumstances. But so there'd be 36 holes a day at St. Andrews, North Berwick, Musselburg, for sure. And then maybe they would add in a fourth, depending on how, how, how much the match was you know, going to be. But uh, they were easier over three. So a lot of golf. And um, so the, the biggest and most famous of these we get to a sort of a peak in 1849 or one of the biggest and most famous is when old Tom and uh, Alan Robertson are taking on the Dunn brothers of Musselburg and the stakes are 200 pounds aside, 400 pounds total, which is a giant sum of money in 1849. You know, it's just hard to get your mind around how big money that is. So an average working person, even 20 years after that was only making 30 pounds a year. So, uh, you know, in 1849, an average working person was probably earning less than 10 pounds a year. So 400 pounds was giant dollars. And, uh, you know, the winning side is going to get 40 pounds to golfers, which is, uh, you know, that's big, big money if you're working in a golf shop. And uh, so that one was played over three, three greens and the last one being at, uh, at North Berwick. And they had to put special trains on to get all the people who wanted to go there, the, the, the railway did. And, uh, you know, thousands of people would show up 
they would, you know, there were no gallery ropes or anything. People would just be wandering around on the course in front of the golfers, behind the golfers, around the golfers. Uh, it was often very difficult to see where your shot went and even more so to make your way through the crowd to hit your next one. So it was a, it was a difficult scene, but they were very popular. And that was the form of golf that I think helped to spread the game as a spectator sport to, uh, to uh, the great masses of people who wanted to watch golf. One of the biggest ones, probably the biggest one, happens in 1873. It's a series of matches against Tommy and his best friend, Davy Strath, who is a very great golfer and the original greatest golfer never to win a major. But he, uh, <clears throat> they played two 108-hole matches in the summer of 1873 in St. Andrews that were just off the charts uh, in terms of hype and everything. Even the Ladies' Home Journal covered them, for goodness sake. And uh, so th those uh, just drew massive, massive crowds up near 10,000, which at that time is, that's the whole city of St. Andrews and then some. And uh, golfers were coming from all over the country to watch. And so those big, great matches, they were thrilling. You know, they uh, ebbs and flows and lots of money being bet. And um, that's the thing that put golf on the map, really. And, and I know the a version of the challenge matches had so much to do with uh, uh, the, the, the post-war boom and, and Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen and, and them playing their exhibitions. Um, do you see a link with these original challenge matches and uh, what we're seeing today that it's kind of coming back and maybe not in the same vein, but do you see that link between the, these current matches that we're seeing uh, made for TV versus, you know, the, the ones of old? Well, Yes, yes and no. I mean, obviously, uh, the match is fun. I enjoy watching them every time they happen. I think it would be uh, better if it was real golf. And if I were the premier golf league, uh, I would give up on this notion of forming another league and start putting together some great matches, foursome matches and singles matches. You know, suppose how much do you think people would pay to see Bryson versus Brooks right now, for instance, uh, and a straight up, you know, match of you know, let's play it over three great golf courses, 36 at Royal Melbourne, 36 at Augusta, 36 here. You know, that would really be huge, I feel like. And it was huge in those days. So, yes, there's a link in the sense of it's a match and it's a but it's not the same as as uh, what, and it, what would be even more fun if the players put up the money themselves, uh, which wasn't what happened in the old days. But the players were poor then and now they're not. And uh, if you um, if Mickelson had to put up his own five million against Tiger, well, that'd be a game. That'd be fun to watch. Uh, but so I see a link, but not, not, a, not, it's not the same in any way. Uh, the passion is not anywhere near the same. Uh, people were really psychotically interested in some of these great matches that took place. There were multiple ones between old Tom and Willie senior. There were multiple ones between Tommy and his father and park William, Willie park and his brother Mungo. So there were, there were a lot of these and they were all incredibly well attended hyped and written about in the paper all the time and uh and just generated tremendous enthusiasm for the game was there a phase that it actually um gambling in the game i think sometimes uh gets a black eye or people think that you know that's not the proper uh way to play the game of golf is is by you know ungentlemanly betting out there on on each other or your own game or against someone and uh What's your take on that? Because obviously it was there from the very beginning. And, and it, was there a time in history that it really got forced out? You know, what ended up, it's, it's, I can't really say that I can trace a specific time when the gambling part of it phased out. Uh, 
the matches did though. You know, uh, what happened was that when the when the game moved into England seriously, most of the great English golfers, Harry Varden, John Henry Taylor, people like that, they began they began to conclude that stroke play was a better test of a champion than match play, which a Scotsman would never agree with then, and they still don't agree with now. But uh, and that really shifted the emphasis of the game to stroke play. And when that happened, you know, I would say the last real match of consequence, uh, you know, obviously Walter Hagen and Bobby Jones was a big match and Hagen killed him in that. But um, really in terms of England and the United Kingdom, in 1905, there's a great international foursome that takes place between Harry Varden and John Henry Taylor representing England. uh, And uh, Harry, of course, being from Jersey, but they were, counted as English then, and uh, James Braid and Sandy Hurd of Scotland. And uh, that had the most massive attendance of anything. But after that, really, especially when the game starts to seriously take root in America, Americans have never really loved match play in anything like the way that the the British have. And uh, Americans, by nature, are very individualistic. And they had an intense, the British actually drove the Scots crazy by keeping their score in a match, which Scots just couldn't even understand. Why would you do that? What is wrong with you? Uh, but, uh, and Americans were worse. You know, Americans were absolutely fixated on their score. They actually built practice facilities and everything. You can't go to any English course or British course that has a real practice facility if it's 100 years old or more. You know, nobody did that. You just, you went out and played or you, if you had a bad club, you would go wander out to some lonely part of the links and keep swinging it until you figured it out. But there weren't driving ranges and things like that. And Americans just brought all that in. And some of that is what leaves match play behind. And obviously, once television came along, match play had no hope because match play results in huge upsets and TV hates huge upsets. Yeah, we, we are uh, fighting that battle for for match play. We, we believe that it's, uh, you know, it shifts so much of the uh, the focus on oneself and and on our our score to moments and experience and uh, the upset the, the there's so much more that I see happening from a match uh, I hope I hope we kind of come that's the that. true form of golf now and forever and I don't care what anyone says it's just like golf is uh, well Freddie Tate who's one of my favorite historic golfers from Scotland he would always say score play is no more a game than rifle shooting a game has an opponent. You know, and uh, it's you against another guy, thrust and parry. That that's not a game. That's like going out and shooting skeet. Yeah. So I I think that I I always love uh, Mackenzie's quote too, where he says something along the lines of uh, uh, paper and and pencil will never compare to uh, blood and flesh or flesh and blood. Uh, that is exactly right. Everybody in Britain hated to play with the card and pencil, as they referred to it. At least the, the Scots did. As the English got more into the game, well, the card and pencil took over, sad to say. What, what do you say to someone who, uh, this is a very American ideal, but you know, they say, hey, I need to post a number. I have to get something in my handicap, my gin system. Um, what's your response to those folks? You know, it's no golf. You know, that's my <laughs> response to this. is no golf. You know, golf is a, is a match, I think. But you know, I keep a handicap. Obviously, when I play, I put a score in. But if I'm playing in a match, I'm not going to bother putting a score in because I'm not even playing to make a score. 
Right. I'm just playing to beat the guy that I'm playing (laughs) or the woman that I'm playing, depending. But, uh, you know, so I don't know. I, I, I feel like match is real golf. I, I play, obviously, stroke play golf. I play in stable for competitions all the time. But I wish I could play in matches. You know, I, I prefer that. And there's just not that many opportunities in competitive golf to play in a match unless you're a real golfer, which, which I'm not. Well, we're going to get to your, your, your golf and your life, and we're going to put you through the, what we call the 19th soul. But uh, before we do, I, I know a lot of these conversations on young Tom and with his uh, historic tragedy uh, of, of how his life ended. And I, I'm, I think many of us listening already know, you know the story there, or, or at least a version of it. So I would love to hear your take after all your research. Has there been some things that maybe were misrepresented of that? Just because we know Hollywood can dramatize something so severe. Um, what, what was your kind of research, data-driven uh, approach to to how his life ended? Tommy, you know, his wife died in childbirth uh, with their son, and Tommy was playing actually at North Berwick in a great match against with his father against Willie Park and Mungo Park, and they had just won the match on the seventeenth green when a messenger elbowed his way into the crowd and told gave Tommy a telegram and it said that his wife was sick and he needed to get home right away of course it was four o'clock or so in North Berwick when that happened and uh no more trains to St Andrews it's a nine hour drive in a cart and buggy at least to get there somebody uh a man named J.C. Lewis agreed to sail him and his father across the Firth the Fourth on a yacht and that's what they did they went home but they still didn't get home till really really late dark it was after I think it was midnight when they finally pulled up to the harbor there. And uh, he goes up to this house with his father and uh, Reverend Boyd, who is the, the, uh, who's the pastor or whatever you would call it. I'm sure I'm not using the right word for Presbyterians. But anyway, uh, he was the church guy and he, he met them at the house and explained that Margaret was already dead and that the baby was dead too. And, you know, obviously that's a tough blow for any human being. He'd only been married not even a whole year. And so he was quite stricken by that emotionally. However, um, I don't believe, I mean, obviously any kind of stress like that is not good for you in terms of your health. But I think the reason he died is um, been pretty clear. It's got nothing to do with this sadness over Margaret. He, uh, he was very sad about it. And, you know, he, uh, he was never quite the same as, as I don't think any person would be. He, he played some very good golf, though, after that. So he was, you know, had recovered himself. Um, he had either a aneurysm in his lung at night, Peter Crabtree, uh, got a hold of the original coroner's report on Tommy's death and had it reviewed by a host of modern physicians. And the, there were two schools of thought on how he had died. One is that he had an aneurysm in his lung, uh, or in his chest cavity, uh, maybe the main artery to his heart burst open. Uh, they didn't have autopsies at that time, so it's not totally knowable. But another another historian that I've spoken with, David Hamilton, wonderful man, he is of the belief, and he was a doctor too, so he has some advantages. He uh, he is of the belief that Tommy had a tuberculosis-related aneurysm, uh, that he had a giant lung hemorrhage at night that killed him. You know, Davy Straff died of tuberculosis a couple years after Tommy's death. And uh, tuberculosis was rampant in St. Andrews at the time. So if your best friend that you're spending a lot of your time with has tuberculosis, you could easily have had an undiagnosed case of it. And that's why you died. He did not die of a broken heart, which is, of course, the story. I mean, obviously, he was brokenhearted, but that was not why he died. When his father buried him in the churchyard at St. Andrews, 
he uh, somebody asked him uh, if he thought Tommy died of a broken heart, and he replied, "If that was true, I wouldn't be here either." So I, I don't, you know, that story is as the kind of myth that grows up. But he had some kind of serious physical ailment. His brother John later died of a burst artery too, so it could have been congenital, uh, or it could have been the tuberculosis thing. But it was one of those two. And, I, and this is a broad question, but I, I don't know any other way to, to sum it up. And I, and I could talk to you all day about this, Stephen, and, and many more topics now that you've triggered a bunch of thoughts in my head, which means we're going to have to have you back. Um, of course, I'm always happy to come back. We, we are going to do, uh, we do the backdrop live where we have our members come on. You're going to join us uh, in the fall. I, I would love if you would do that for us because I, I know- I'd be delighted to do it. We'll, we'll enjoy this story. Um, but the, uh, the legacy of young Tom, you know, I, I don't know if, you, if it's possible to sum up, but what would you, a few sentences on what you think the, the young man's legacy is today? I would say, first and foremost, he revolutionized the way that the game was played itself. Tommy was the first player to use iron clubs regularly. Everyone played strictly with long-nosed wooden clubs, pretty much. The only iron they would have carried was a little rut iron, tiny little stubby face thing that was used to deal with the reality that all public courses were, were exactly that public workmen in wheeled carts would be going all over the links and they would leave ruts in there. And you would have to, of course they were in play. So you would have to pop the ball out of the rut if you got in one. And then when Tommy was born, the gutty ball had been, it was in use and gutties were way, way harder than the feather balls that preceded them. And so you could hit them with an iron and Tommy was the first person to really I guess, realize and take advantage of it. He started hitting his rut iron to the green regularly. And he would create that shot we see now that flies high and stops. Couldn't spin it backwards because it was a smooth face club, but he could do that. And then he started hitting bump and run shots. He got, had this little sort of straight faced iron club that he would, everybody had a wooden putter. So did he, but you, uh, you, when you were up 50, 60 yards off the green, you putted it. Uh, if you or even 30 yards off the green with nothing in between you and the hole, you would put it. Or if you had to loft it, you would take your baffing spoon and pop it up in the air and land it, land it on the green. But Tommy started hitting bump and run shots with what he called a jigger. So he changed. And then the more Tommy played with these clubs, the more irons got in developed, more cliques came into use, more mashies, you know, later came. So he starts that iron club revolution, which is really big. Secondarily, everybody who played golf in the age before Tommy played a band of golf that a Scotsman would refer to as pawky. That means cunning and wit or strategy. So they were basically trying to carefully maneuver their ball around every hazard and get it onto the green without trouble and make their two putts and get out of there with the five or whatever it was. But Tommy had no use for that approach to golf. He was an attack player. And he is really, in a lot of ways, the forerunner of the power golfers that we see today because he was the first person to just lash at it and, you know, trouble be damned. And I'll figure out the trouble when I find it, you know. Great example is Muscleboro. There's a hole at Muscleboro where there's a road that runs along the side of the hole that every other golfer looked at as a hazard. Tommy would purposely hit his ball onto road to make it run way, way down the around the road, almost like the tin cup scene, so that he could gain distance. And uh, John Laidley, a great amateur golfer that age, saw him do it, and he thought that's when he knew Tommy was the greatest golfer ever because he's doing he's putting the ball where everyone fears to tread on purpose. And, uh, <laughs> and so that was kind of interesting. So those ways. And he popularized the game as a spectator sport. And that's the other really, really big thing. The winning of the Open, the winning of the belt was the first epochal event in the game when Tommy wins the belt in 1870. And uh, then, you know, the big matches in 1873, they were the thing that got the 
game to be a spectator sport in Britain. That, that is most historians would see as the turning point for golf moving you know, out of the clubs and into the wider spectator arena. So those are his big legacies, I would say. Your, your uh, discussion on the equipment just reminded me of a story I had heard. I've never uh, asked anyone with any authority on this, so I, this would be interesting. But I, I have been told that the, the idea of a tee box was attributed to Tommy. Does that sound? No. Uh, okay. it, 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 the tea, there were no tee boxes in Tommy's lifetime. The rule was that you played a certain number of club lengths from the hole you had just finished, which could tell you a little bit about conditions of greens in those days. Um, of course, when everybody's using those long nose wooden clubs, there's not a lot of divots. Um, 1875, Tom's father decides that there need to be tee boxes because the greens are getting too beat up. And he establishes tee boxes at St. Andrews and everybody then follows suit around the nation over time. But, uh, but Tom's father was the one who just the condition of the greens were such that, you know, uh, of course you had everybody trampling around the hole because originally it was two club links. So two club links from the hole, you just putted it into, you're teeing it up and hitting it. And most of the time they were taking the sand for their tee out of the hole too. So the hole would get wider and wider and wider. And uh, eventually, you know, they started using the tin liners for the hole. So they'd stay the same size. And uh, the tee boxes came in 1875. Tom was, was dead then. Well, he died that year. Wow. Well, I, I uh, Stephen, I think if I would have, you know, read the book first, I, I would probably had a lot more specific question for you. But I think this is better doing it this way because now I, I, I can't wait for it to arrive and dive in, and then, and then when we get together, I'll, I'll definitely have those more detailed questions for you later. Well, I hope you enjoy it, Matt. I really had a good time writing it and um, and researching it, and I've been really overwhelmed with the positive response it's gotten. So I'm very happy about that. Now, before I let you go, we got one last segment for you. It's called The 19th Soul. What I've done is adapted the 35 questions of Marcel Proust, the French yes, novelist, wonderful. who was looking to get to the truest nature of an individual. What we've done is adapted it for the, the beautiful game of golf. And what we're looking for is to find the soul of the golfer. So, Stephen, we had 18 questions. They're, they're meant to be quick answer. Uh, many of them could be philosophical. You could, you could think all day and night about them, but we would love for you to, to the first thing that comes to mind for each of them. Gotcha. Are you ready? I am ready. Number one, when were you the happiest as a golfer? Uh, on the first tee at St. Andrews. Number two, what's the scariest shot in golf? Uh, I would say from the road hole bunker onto the green. I'd agree with you. My first time around, I took three shots in that thing. <laughs> Didn't go yeah, well. we went out the night before and snuck in the bunker when it was the course was closed and tried a few shots and thought we better stay out of there. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a round ruiner. I had a really good one going. Uh, number three, what is your go-to order at the halfway house? A uh, buffalo chicken sandwich, unless I'm at the Olympic Club, in which case I get a burger dog. It's got a very American answer. I'm good. Good that you do have some, you know, American golf in you. Uh, number four, what is the trait you most deplore in your own golf game? Getting angry when I play poorly. Number five, what is the quality you most look for in a playing partner? Somebody who's fun to play golf with. Good criteria. Number six, uh, what is the trait you most deplore in other golfers? Teaching others to try and play on the course. <laughs> We got some members. Particularly that if it's that. a woman. Yes, yes. Every man I play with tries to coach every woman. And it's just so embarrassing and 
completely stupid, but there we are. Here we are. Number seven, what words or phrases do you most overuse on the golf course? Oh boy, that's a good one. Uh, be as good as you look. <laughs> nice. Number eight, what golfing talent would you most want to have? The ability to drive the ball a long way. Young Tommy. Number nine, what is your most treasured golf possession? Uh, that's a great one. Um, I would say I commissioned a painting from a British artist named Sandra Russell of a very famous scene from the 1899 Amateur Championship, which is a magnificent work of art. And that is my prized golf possession. Beautiful. Number 10, what's the one thing in your golf bag you should throw out today? Well, nothing, because I don't carry anything in my golf bag. I usually carry nine balls, six tees, and, uh, and that's it. What if you run out of tees? Uh, pick one up off the ground. <laughs> I like that approach. Very minimalist. Uh, number 11, what is your favorite occupation at the golf course? Chipping and putting. Number 12, have you ever asked another golfer for their autograph? No. I do have many autographs, but I've never asked for any of them. Ah, so you've, you've got them secondhand? People have given them to me, little historic things with people's signatures on them, but I haven't actually asked for any. Which one's your favorite? Uh, well, I'm, a, I'm real good friends with Bill Horschel Sr., so I have a lot of stuff signed by his son, and uh, probably my greatest golf experience in terms of being at an event was I, I walked with Billy and his parents when he won the FedEx Cup. And uh, they let me come out onto the 18th green for the presentation ceremony, which was, which was, which was really cool. So uh, Billy's been uh, uh, good to me. He, uh, when I was right in the heart of doing this book, he got in the open at St. Andrews in 2015. And uh, he gave me a free room in his flat so I could come over and work and keep my expenses down. So I'm very indebted to the Horschel family and uh, they've been really great to me. So I, I, I have a whole wall in my writing room here. That's a Billy Horschel shrine sort of. And, uh, you know, I know he does, he does some things I don't agree with, obviously, but that's true of all people. And, uh, but he's been really great to me and his father is a, is a, and his, and Kathy, his wife, mother are great friends of mine. That's really cool. Uh, this one is either going to be very easy or very difficult for you, but number 13, what historical golf figure do you most relate to? <clears throat> oh boy. Relate to, that's a great question. I'd say Harold Hilton. Harold Hilton. Harold Hilton uh, played golf in the 1890s. He uh, won the Open Championship twice as an amateur. But the reason I relate to Hilton is Hilton is a writer and thinker about the game and one of the better ones. Not that I'm putting myself in the class of Harold Hilton. I'm just saying his approach to golf was a very intellectual approach. And that's sort of my approach to everything in life, often to my detriment, <laughs> particularly as it pertains to golf. <laughs> Sometimes you got to turn off that brain. Uh, number 14, what is your greatest golf regret? My greatest golf regret is that I have not played Band and Dunes. Oh, that will. That's the premier spot in the United States. And yeah. you know, the way I'm living my life is that every time I travel, it's to England or Scotland. And so I haven't really gotten to do some of the great American destinations, and I probably won't. We'll be there in December. You know, we'd love you yeah, to join I us. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, number 15, what's your favorite golf book? My favorite golf book is um, Badminton's Golf by Horace Hutchinson. 
one of the very first books ever written on the game. And it's just a classic, great book. That one and Playing the Light by Bernard Darwin. For a lot of Bernard Darwin today, I think that's got to make our list here at soon. If you had to recommend one Bernard Darwin book, uh, what would it be for our for a general audience? I would recommend Jeff Silverman's book called uh, that's a that's a compendium of Darwin's work from a lot of his different collections. I have 25 of his collections. And uh, but that's a really good one by Jeff Silverman. It's called Darwin on Golf. Well, Has a number six, of my favorite essays in it. Beautiful. Number 16. What is your least favorite hole in all of golf? Oh boy, my least favorite hole in all of golf. That's a tough one. Uh, I would say the sixth at Glen Eagles in San Francisco, where I made a 15 in a tournament once. It's usually which is a, an unpleasantry. It's usually a personal answer to that response. <laughs> it's something that some scar. It's a should. tough hole. I love the hole, actually. It's a great hole. It's just, it has brutalized me more than any single hole I've ever played. That's what I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. Those stick with us. Uh, this, this, la this 17th one is, is, um, I'm guessing you don't listen to music on the golf course, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I wouldn't personally do it, but I don't object to a companion doing it so long as they don't have horrible taste in music. So if you had one song to listen to either on the golf course or maybe during practice or on your way to the golf course, one song for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, wow. Um, the weight. By uh, yeah, good rhythm to it. Yeah, that's a good one. We're gonna have some fun with that answer at the end of the season. And finally, our last question for you, Stephen, a number eighteen. If you had a motto, maybe you do. If you had a motto, what would it be? I would say that my motto is a Bernard Darwin line, which is his goal was uh, to preserve the memories of heroes old as the years roll by and make them the brightest of records. That is my essential motto. A beautiful quote and a beautiful conversation. You brought a lot of light to our, our world today. Uh, I love that I was looking at this image of young Tom thinking it's him. It's his older brother. It's yeah. His, his younger brother, right? Is that yes. Yes. Uh, younger brother. I, a lot of revelations today. It, it just makes me, thirst for more history. And I think that's what I love about having someone like you on the show, Stephen, is that it's, we've only the tip of the iceberg here. And, and um, I, I hope people pick up Monarch of the Green. I hope people uh, reach out to you, look into your other work. What, how can our audience and members, how can they uh, get in touch? Well, first off, anybody who wants to could uh, go to my Twitter feed, which is at S Proctor golf. And uh, I post things there regularly about the history of the game and books from my bookshelf that I think golfers might enjoy reading or, or things like that. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I'm not shy about anybody who wants to email me, can email me. It's uh, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Robert Proctor at gmail.com. Feel free. If you have a question, send it in. I'll do my best to answer it for you. And uh, yeah, that, those are basically the two ways you can get me. Excellent. Well, Stephen, thank you for being on. Thank you for joining us. Looking forward to the next one. Thank you, man. It was fun to talk with you. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New Club Golf. This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Sitar. 
The Backdrop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners. Journeyman Distillery is the official partner of this year's summer medal at Sand Valley and Lasonia. Golf and whiskey go together like, well, the perfect twosome. My favorite is their Silver Cross. It's a name that hails from the medal given out at the early days of the British Open. This medal would later come to symbolize friendship, tradition, camaraderie, and spirited competition. In that same spirit, Journeyman has created a tradition they call Four Grains for Golf, donating 1% of all sales from Silver Cross Whiskey back to the various golf charities and organizations that teach kids the game of golf. It instills in them its core values. Kids play free on Welter Folly's 30,000 square foot real grass putting green. Not kidding, it's huge. Modeled after Himalaya's putting course in St. Andrews, Scotland. Journeyman has been distilling artisan spirits for a decade in their historic Featherbone factory located in the one-stop light town of Three Oaks, Michigan. They are grain to bottle, produce certified organic, kosher, and gluten-free award-winning whiskeys, and you can check out their full portfolio of spirits at journeymandistillery.com. 